thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to be here. What's Jewish about fat activism? We're so excited for this learning. And uh, we wanna thank our, our, uh, our friend and partner here, Edith Cox, who was really the visionary and supporter behind enabling this amazing program to happen and bumped up Rabbi uh, Bromberg's amazing work on my radar to the next level. Um, and that she has also kindly offered to follow up potentially with a or some discussion groups or activist groups, ways to put the learning into action uh, to go deeper on a personal level and on a communal level. So feel free to circle back to us if you would like to do that, uh, no matter where you are, um, local or distant. So friends, today we um, have here the founder and president of Fat Torah, Rabbi Mina Bromberg, PhD, who is passionate about bringing her three decades of experience in fat activism to writing, teaching, and change-making at the nexus of Judaism and body liberation. Minna received her doctorate in sociology from Northwestern University with a dissertation on identity formation in interfaith couples and was ordained at Hebrew College in 2010, same year I was ordained. She lives in Jerusalem, the holy city of Yerushalayim with her husband, Rabbi Dr. Alan Abrams and their two children. Thrilled to have you today, here today, Rabbi Minna Bromberg. Please, uh, please take it away. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. And I want to start with a song that's been central to my own body liberation journey. And I like to open with song really as a way of just welcoming everyone into this space and giving ourselves a moment or two to, to fully arrive uh, and in, in a space that's going to have some material that's going to be new and unfamiliar to some of you and um, quite welcome to, to others of you and maybe even a little strange at some at some point in time. So um, this offering of song is just a way of giving us some space to um, to arrive together here. How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that our loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that our loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that our loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. 
So our topic today is what's Jewish about fat activism. And we're going to start with what is fat activism, because that seems like an important place to start. And I want to start actually by sharing with you a little bit of my own journey in this work. And that is to, to start with the fact that I started dieting as a, as a seven-year-old because mostly because I, I hoped that it would be a way for me to have more friends. I think that was my main thinking at the time. And um, was really, I would say, quote unquote, supported in that um, by everyone around me. Everyone around me seemed to think it was a good idea for me um, as a seven-year-old to try to lose weight, um, which is an odd thing in retrospect for anyone to think because seven-year-olds are supposed to be growing. Um, and by the time I was 16, I had been on all kinds of diets and really developed a pretty thorough hatred, I would say, for my body. And thankfully, by the time I was 16, I was ready to, to let go of that. And I found my way through a few steps that I'll skip over to the fat acceptance movement. And at the time, I think it, it bears mentioning that at the time to be involved in any kind of social change movement meant that we were operating without an internet. Um, and so um, this meant that people were finding each other through magazines and self-published zines and organizational newsletters. Um, and I think one of the things that many people don't know about fat activism is that it exists. And so um, fat activism has existed in the United States in an organized fashion since 1969, when an organization formed called the National Association, is, shortly came to be known as the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. And it was actually, interestingly, given the way we currently think about activism and who ought to be advocating for themselves and um, all the things that we know about, you know, how our identities should be expressed and the desire to have people um, advocating for their own identities rather than being advocated on their behalf by others, um, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance was actually started um, by a handful of thin white men who were concerned about the way that fat stigma impacted their large partners, their large female partners. So thin heterosexual white men founded the movement. Um, thank you for doing that. And um, and then, you know, over the last 50 years, it's really been a process of figuring out how to um, create a movement that um, is more um, that's not about us without us, and it's also recognizing all of the different forms of systemic oppression that intersect or interact with uh, with weight stigma. And I have to say, I'm very proud that um, that NAFA is doing a really um, wonderful job, and you can find out more about them on on the Google if you're interested in that. But um, I want to take even one more step back and say a word or two about the about the word fat because it's still a word that i'm sometimes surprised to find has so many negative connotations 
um, because part of the work of fat activism is simply but not easily restoring the term fat to a place of moral neutrality. And so one of my favorite definitions of the word fat or why I, as someone who is a, a large fat woman, um, use it to describe myself is that fat refers to adipose tissue that all human bodies are supposed to have in some measure. Um, and that fat people are people with a lot of adipose tissue and that there's really nothing particularly um, good or bad about that in on its on its most basic level. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I use the word fat to describe myself, because I believe in reclaiming it as a as a morally neutral way of describing a particular type of body in the infinite diversity of, of human bodies that we have. So, and we'll talk more about that infinite diversity um, when we get into the what's Jewish about fat activism piece um, later in our time together. So I want to now move to sharing a little bit about why we need fat activism. And that is to share a little bit about fat phobia. And what I've found is that one of the easiest ways into this is to actually start right off by talking about different kinds of fat phobia or anti-fatness or weight stigma, which are terms that I personally tend to use interchangeably. So I'm going to show you uh, a slide that I created that's uh, for me a helpful illustration of this. As I'm moving through any of this, you should please feel free if you have questions or comments to just put them right in the chat. We are going to have time later for a Q&A section and also for um, some discussion amongst yourselves in breakout rooms. Um, but absolutely, uh, the chat is a great place if there are things that are coming up for you along the way to um, to go ahead and just put them in the chat and I will um, either attend to them right away or um, or save them for our Q&A time in a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to share with you um, this screen. So when we think about different types of fat phobia, different folks have different ways of dividing these up. The terms that I use are systemic, interpersonal, and internalized. Um, and so internalized, so let me show you what I mean by these. So internalized fat phobia is something that people of any size can experience. Um, and it's the way that any of us might judge ourselves or experience body dissatisfaction or think that we ought to be thinner regardless of our size um, or engage in restrictive or self-harming behaviors. So internalized fat phobia can certainly be impactful and harmful in people's lives. And we know from research that weight stigma, experiencing weight stigma for people in any size body increases their risk of developing an eating disorder, which is um, and eating disorders are among the most deadly of all mental illnesses. Um, so we know that this internalized fat phobia that can impact people of any size is is 
um, is genuinely harmful to people, and I don't want to minimize that at all. Interpersonal fat phobia are the comments about our bodies or what we're eating that we might get. Um, it turns out that um, the when they've done studies of where we are uh, exposed most to weight stigma, that in fact people are exposed most to weight stigma in the context of their close family and friends. Um, so this kind of interpersonal um, fat phobia is often happening in the context of um, intimate relationships. The second most common place where people experience interpersonal fat phobia is in their doctor's office. Um, it's not fun. Um, but one thing that's in, the reason that I have this in the middle in in sort of my scale of what size of people um, this kind of fat phobia impacts is that we certainly can have folks who are not in particularly large bodies who happen to have a friend or family member who's thinks it's a good idea to, to criticize that person's body and tell them that they ought to be thinner. So um, I often encounter people who don't experience systemic fat phobia that we'll talk about in a moment, but have had experiences with a relative or friend um, who took it upon themselves to make um, denigrating comments about the size of their body. Systemic fat phobia, which as with all forms of systemic oppression, we really measure not by our sort of felt experience of it, but by the impacts that it has on us as a group and the way that it impacts our life chances as a group. Um, so fat people as a group in our society experience discrimination in employment and healthcare and education and lack of physical accommodations in, um, in public life. Um, just to give you one terrible example, there was a study that came out recently that looked at the grading of papers for junior high school students and found that when the person grading the paper was told that the student who had written the paper was fat, that they, on the whole, that fat students or students who uh, the graders were told were fat received lower grades than their thinner counterparts for the same papers. Right? So they took the same papers and told the people who were grading it um, whether the person who had written it was fat or thin, the student. Um, so uh, we do have this just blatant kinds of discrimination. And it's worth noting that um, that fatness as a category is not protected from discrimination um, in employment or education or healthcare in um, anywhere, with the exception of a couple of municipalities that have passed um, anti-size discrimination um, ordinances and um, one state, I believe, one, one of the 50 states um, also has legislation, um, also has law that protects uh, against discrimination um, for, for height or weight. Um, otherwise, we don't have any um, protection under the law at this point. And uh, if, we, if we like, we can talk more about why I think that might be and why that matters. So um, any questions just about this chart or anything else that I've said so far? Right. So what I want to move on to is just a tiny bit more about the the history of fat activism by moving us a little bit farther 
than um, than the founding of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance in 1969, and moving us to the year 1973, when what had happened was that there was a group of uh, women in Los Angeles who were involved in some radical therapy movements and were also had formed themselves as a chapter of NAFA, as like a local chapter of this national organization. But they split off from NAFA because NAFA as a larger body was concerned that they were too radical and that they were too um, too political. And um, and so that group then formed itself as the fat underground. And in 1973, they published um, a fat liberation manifesto that I'm going to share with you. And as you can, um, the, the two women who on behalf of the Fat Underground actually put this manifesto together, it so happens, we can talk about whether it just so happens or whether there's something to it. Um, it so happens that they were actually both Jewish women, Judy Free Spirit and um, Al Deberon, who now goes by the name Sarah Fishman. Um, so they're the ones who wrote this. Um, and um, is there anyone who feels like reading a point or two out loud? Yes, Shmuley. Starting with number one and ending. Why don't you go through number three? Great. We believe that fat people are fully entitled to human respect and recognition. We are angry at mistreatment by commercial and sexist interests. These have exploited our bodies as objects of ridicule, thereby creating an immensely profitable market, selling the false promise of avoidance of or relief from that ridicule. We see our struggle as allied with the struggles of other oppressed groups against classism, racism, sexism, ageism, financial exploitation, imperialism, and the like. Jesse Rubenstein, are you, would you like to read or do you have a question? I would love to read. Wonderful. Let me move us down. Will you will you take us through four and five? Of course. We demand equal rights for fat people in all aspects of life as promised in the Constitution of the United States. We demand equal access to goods and services in the public domain and an end to discrimination against us in the areas of employment, education, public facilities and health services. We single out as our special enemies, the so-called reducing industries. These include diet clubs, reducing salons, fat farms, diet doctors, diet books, diet foods and food supplements, surgical procedures, appetite suppressants, drugs, and gadgetry such as wraps and reducing machines. You can, there you go, you can keep going on five. We demand that they take responsibility for their false claims, acknowledge that their products are harmful to the public health, and publish long-term studies proving any statistical efficacy of their products. We make this demand knowing that over 99% of all weight loss programs, when evaluated over a five-year period, fail utterly and also knowing the extreme proven harmfulness of frequent large changes in weight. Thank you. Does anyone want to take us home? Yes, Edith. I'll take it. Okay, so Edith, why don't you do six and then Pam, you can really take us home. 
We repudiate the mystified science which falsely claims that we are unfit. It is both caused and upheld discrimination against us in collusion with the financial interest of insurance companies, the fashion and garment industries, reducing industries, the food and drug industries, and the medical and psychiatric establishment. We refuse to be subjugated to the interests of our enemies. We fully intend to reclaim power over our bodies and our lives. We commit ourselves to pursue these goals together. Fat people of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose. Thank you. So anything that, is there anything um, surprising or particularly interesting to you about this manifesto that was published in 1973? You're welcome to either raise your hand or just unmute yourself and talk or um, write in the chat. What I find interesting is that they're publishing this in 1973, and yet here we are, you know, a long, long time later, near, nearly 50 years later, and none of it has changed. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, some of it has gotten worse, right? So the reducing industry that they talk about, the diet industry, in the US is now a $72 billion industry. Um, and that doesn't even include um, all of the other sort of the all the other aspects of the of the wellness industry that have a lot of fat phobia in them as well, even if they're not specifically aimed at, um, at weight loss. Um, and the other thing that's happened since this was published um, is that in the mid 90s, we saw this real shift in medicine where size became really codified, where fatness became codified as illness, right? So this has been something that had been happening throughout the sort of second two thirds of the 20th century, but it was really in the mid nineties that, um, that we see this whole idea of a quote unquote war on, on obesity. Right, and, and the sort of, again, codifying fatness as a disease um, that we didn't, that, you know, wasn't even the case when, um, when they were writing. And I think also, you know, they're right that already by the, um, by the time that they're writing, we already have good data that diets don't work. Um, we already have had um, basically since the 1960s, good data that um, as they say over 99% of all weight loss programs over a five year period fail utterly. Um, I was recently at my own doctor's office. Um, and when I quoted this statistic that I wouldn't say 99, I would say 95 to 98% of all the intentional weight loss efforts um, fail over a five year period. And my doctor said, well, just because 98% of people fail, and I had to interrupt her and so say, it's not 98% of the people who are, it's not the people who are failing, right? That, um, that, that her automatic response was, you know, to turn it into this sense that, um, you know, that it was people who are failing. And I think that one of the things that's important to say here is that, you know, then we have this question of, you know, why is weight loss something that's still advocated for among you know people who know how science works um, and i think it has something to do 
with the fact that humans are really terrible estimators of our of risk and chance. And um, right, so we also have, you know, the lottery lotteries where people, uh, you know, if they looked at the statistics of what their actual chances were of winning the mega millions or whatever it is, would uh, maybe understand, you know, how very small their chance was. But when the payoff is so big, we sort of lose our ability to make good decisions, I would say, about the risks and the chances that we're willing to take. And so what we can see about, from my perspective, about the fact that the diet industry has now grown to a $72 billion industry in the US is that the promised benefits of losing weight are so great, both in terms of social acceptability and in terms of ideas about health and illness, that people are willing over and over again to make these attempts. Um, and as the, the manifesto also states, right, that um, I'm looking at the end of number five here, knowing the extreme proven harmfulness of frequent large changes in weight. This is something that's called weight cycling. Um, and um, it's essentially what people who diet are doing, meaning that they're um, experiencing these swings in their weight, right, because they um, lose weight uh, sometimes when they're dieting and then gain it back whenever um, the body gets used to metabolizing at a lower number of calories or whatever it is that they're restricting. So, um, so right, we, we have this, um, this data already and, um, and have had it for, for decades and decades. And there's been sort of, I would say, um, a lag in society um, catching up with the data. Um, Jesse's asking some, um, Eddie says that, yes, these seem like basic rights that everyone should have, I agree. Um, and, um, um, and Shmuley's asking, what are some of the unique ways that Jews in particular add stigma here in addition to the universal ways? Great, thank you. Um, between the interpersonal and the systemic, yep, on the group community level, great, we're gonna get to that. Um, and how does gender affect, affect these lack of human rights? And are there differences particularly found in the Jewish community? Great, we are going to, um, to get to all of that. So um, I want to, um, to say um, one more word about fat activism, and then we're gonna do um, some breakout rooms where I want you to have a chance to talk about um, how we think about bodies in Jewish communal spaces, and then we'll have a larger conversation about that. And I can share some of what I found in some, both my own experience and some of the um, data and stories that I've been collecting um, since I started this work. Okay, so the one um, last thing before we uh, move into our breakout rooms that I want to say about fat activism um, is that there has been this growth since the early 2000s um, of what's usually called the body positivity movement. And um, this is a movement that largely has happened online and at times has had this incredible outpouring of women of all sizes and women of all races and a lot of a, a lot of intersectionality and sort of thinking about the ways that 
fat black bodies experience both racism and fat phobia different than their white and or thin counterparts. Um, and so the body positivity movement has had um, some incredible um, things going on in it. But one thing that's happened that folks have sort of noticed more recently is that the movement has a little bit been um, sort of taken over um, by mostly thinner, mostly white women who are really very focused on, and you can hear this just in the term body positivity, really focused on sort of a narrow sense of our relationship with our own bodies. And you can see if we look back, let me just um, share this again, if we look back at types of fat phobia, the body positivity movement is really, oops, where did it go? Um, is really emphasizing this internalized fat phobia, right? So it's about, um, it's mostly about women judging ourselves. Um, and part of what's problematic about this is that the more that it focuses exclusively on internalized fat phobia, the more it can tend to sort of throw other folks under the bus. Um, so that's one concern about the body positivity movement and how it's distinct from fat activism or, or fat liberation. Um, another piece, though, is that you also, it, it, is a, it is a wonderful and joyous thing to have a loving relationship with our own bodies. And it's certainly been in a, a central part of my own liberation is to find ways to be accepting and, and loving my own body. Um, at the same time, one thing that the that the body positivity movement tends to sort of over focus on is the idea that this is all just about how each of us individually feels about our own body and that is neither necessary nor sufficient to fat liberation but by which i mean you actually don't have to love your own body in order to believe in these basic human rights as we were saying um, and when we overemphasize the need to love our own bodies in order to do this work, it can feel like this real burden, right? Like we're not allowed to um, speak out about discrimination against people because of their body size, unless we're coming from this place of already completely accepting and loving our own bodies. And so um, loving your body is a lovely and delightful thing, but it's not actually a requirement for believing that we should find ways to confront weight stigma in our certainly in our communal lives um, so that's one piece and the other is just that it's not really gonna that, that loving our own bodies isn't gonna is, is not sufficient in the sense that it's not going to get us all the way there which i can say from personal experience that um, i often walk around in public life loving my own body and that has never protected me from people on the street who know nothing about me, stopping me to make comments about how they think I should be living my life in my body. Um, and it's maybe, it's maybe um, increased my ability to have resilience to continue going out in public, despite knowing that, um, that I will be accosted by strangers, but, um, but it, doesn't actually, um, it doesn't actually decrease the frequency of, of, or impact of those um, kinds of comments and it also doesn't protect me from that so it doesn't protect me from interpersonal um interpersonal fat phobia and it also doesn't protect me from systemic fat phobia 
Um, so those are, um, I think that's an important distinction to make. And the other one last thing that I had forgotten to say is that you can see in the manifesto um, that one of the things that the folks who wrote it are really relying on is science, right? And is this whole um, scientific data interrogating the way that fat people are treated? And another thing that developed in the mid 1990s, just as um, just as size is being, just as fatness is being sort of codified as a disease, um, is something called the Health at Every Size movement, which is pioneered um, by Lindo Bacon, um, and um, and is basically focusing on this whole idea that you know we now have other ways other than fatness of measuring people's health, um, and that all of the health conditions that fat people are um, are at increased risk for um, a it's not clear that fatness is a cause of that increased risk b it's not clear that weight loss is going to help since weight loss doesn't work in the long term um, and um, and so the health at every size movement is really advocating for getting away from this idea that um, that correlation equals causation, for one thing, right? The sense that just because fat people are at increased risk of certain diseases doesn't necessarily mean that um, that our fatness is what's causing it. And that in fact, one contributing factor could be weight stigma itself. Um, so just to give one example of the way that weight stigma um, impacts fat people's health is that um, fat people as a group um, avoid seeking medical treatment. Uh, which means that we end up at the doctor sicker um, than our than our counterparts um, because we've been trying to avoid the um, stigmatizing impacts of going to the doctor. Um, so that's just one little example of that. Okay, so um, to shift us into this whole question of uh, what's Jewish about this, um, I want us to uh, do some breakout room time. Learn in your breakout rooms. I, I think, I mean, in our breakout room, we talked about our like personal experiences with it. So I guess it seems like I've learned about, I've learned about another person's personal experience sort of with um, at least sort of like internalized um, uh, fat phobia. And then also like, uh, you know, people have different concerns about passing it on. Like, so like what we know and have internalized, like, are we also contributing to the, um, perpetual nature of this cycle? Mm -hmm. yes. Anyone else want to share from your own experience or as, um, Love Wells did preparing, sharing, uh, what you learned in the room more generally, but without, you know, naming anyone's names without their permission. Thank you. That's good modeling. One thing we did talk about um, in our group and it's, uh, um, is food is very Jewish. You know, everything, I, I know I grew up every holiday, every family function is all about food. But when you're the, um, the, the heavier person in the family, then it's like, do I engage in the food or do I just, you know, go in the other room and don't engage in the food? So 
um, it's a, it, it, you can't win for losing kind of situation sometimes at the holidays and things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a culture, a lot about food. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about how sometimes for Jews, food is love. And if you're not supposed to have that food, then, you know, are you, are you denied that love? And how hard it can be to navigate if you're supposed to eat the, like, it's a push-pull. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a push-pull. And I would also say that it's just very twisted. So um, one of the, one of my earliest and most dramatizing memories of this that I can remember as, you know, a seven or eight year old when I had first started dieting was being at a family meal and having my bubby put a plate of cookies like for the table, but right in front of me and look at me and say, you don't want any of those, do you? And it was like the most sort of twisted, like, you know, I was a kid, right? So did, it was sort of this like, did I? Did I not? I thought I did, but I knew I wasn't supposed to. And just the way that that, you know, especially for children, but not only, can really just twist our relationships with love and food and um, and the people who actually say those things to us, right? That um, it can be um, become quite a hard thing to um, to make sense of. I would say. Make any sense of. Thank you. Other things that that I talked about in our session was how in our breakout room was how the comments made in a Jewish setting to um, to people can while well meaning well meaning are you know oftentimes misdirected you know I was I'm the daughter of a rabbi and so I was the congregation's child and um, when I was 14 years old a congregant came up at the oneg when I was eating a piece of cake and said, do you really need that piece of cake to a 14 year old child? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're pointing out that particularly in communal spaces where we might have specific roles that make us more visible or that give people a sense of sort of ownership over us in some way, um, that people feel sort of freer to say things um, that are really very harmful. Yeah. And I think that part of the, you know, we want our communities to feel like places of closeness. And when fat phobia is part of that closeness, it can be particularly damaging. And um, sort of the flip side of that is that, um, yeah, that, or not the flip side, but sort of the extension of that, right, is that what we aim for in a community is a community of of welcome and so to have any kind of um attribute or identity that um that is clearly in some way made to feel unwelcome can be particularly harmful right it's different it's certainly different for me to experience a random stranger on the street giving me their opinion about how i should be behaving or living my life um than it was certainly when i was a congregational rabbi and i had congregants who wanted to tell me things about how I was living my life. One of my um, sort of favorite, least favorite stories of that was that um, when I was a relatively um, new rabbi, my um, 
my, you know, the congregation knew that I didn't, um, that I didn't drive on Shabbat. And so I had a board member actually, so you can sort of think also about some of the power dynamics there, right? Where this is, a, this is my congregant and I'm meant to be their rabbi, but this is also a board member of the organization. And I was a freshly minted, you know, young female rabbi, uh, a board member who said, oh, how far is your walk to synagogue? And I thought, well, that, you know, didn't, that just seemed like a very factual question. Um, and so I said, oh, you know, two miles, two miles there and back, to which she responded, oh, that's going to be so good for you. So again, similar to, right, without any inquiry, of, right, and, you know, to the, to the point about things being well-meaning, right, that if we actually care about what's good for someone or not, um, we can demonstrate that by, you know, asking them. So, like, even in asking them about what it, what that means to them, right? So she could have even said, oh, what's that like for you to walk two miles, right? She could have actually just made inquiry into whether that was something that I was used to doing, not used to doing, thought was going to be good for me, thought was going to exacerbate some other problem that I was having, right? You can imagine that a two-mile walk could be good or not good for someone, really depending. Um, and so, um, so that's just one example of um, you know, some of the uh, kinds of comments that, um, that larger people are exposed to um, and the way that some of the dynamics of a Jewish community can absolutely um, play out in, um, in the harm that they cause. Any, anything else that came up in your groups um, that you'd like to share? Um, someone shared uh, in the chat something about accessibility and mikvah. Something that anyone wanted to say more about? Um, I guess like the original question was just like, how does this show up? And I was saying in space, like I was saying like, there's a lot of ways that anti-fat bias shows up and a lot of it is like in spacing. And so I just made the connection from like um, anti-fat bias in medical, in the medical complex for a number of reasons, but structurally like tables not being able to accommodate people, surgeries not being able to happen because of the mm -hmm. weight limits for things that one of the structural um, like Jewish things would be like the mikvah, like not all mikvah can accommodate everyone of every size and accessibility mm -hmm. and anti-fat bias also play a connection. Yeah, so I think um, sort of two things that you're reminding me of. One is that absolutely there are sort of um, basic physical accommodation um, and accessibility questions for the largest among us that show up in various places in Jewish context. So just to say a little bit more about that, um, the most uh, frequently encountered one of those is, is just seating, um, right? So I um, traveled to, or before the pandemic, right? Traveled to a lot of con different congregations um, and it was, you know, a large source of concern for me, whether there was gonna be seating um, that would accommodate me or not. And I have to say that in exactly zero of those contexts was I ever asked about what kind of accommodation I might need, um, which, and, and I have to say um, for myself that I also, I also never asked, right? I never, when I was going to be a visiting scholar somewhere, asked in advance about what the seating would be like, which in retrospect feels kind of like, you know, what is it that I, as someone who, you know, have been involved in this work for 30 years, still don't have just sort of a script for finding out whether I'm going to be accommodated. Um, 
so yes, absolutely um, physical accessibility. And then also, especially in a place like mikvah, where someone is potentially watching you when you're naked, um, that um, this can also be a place where just sort of what might seem like offhand comments can really be quite um, stigmatizing. So a friend of mine, um, who's also um, a fat activist, um, told me a story about um, going to a mikvah and having the mikvah guide um, tell her that she needed to really be sure um, because her um, because her breasts and her belly were sort of making contact with her body, you really need to be sure that the water gets everywhere. And my friend was like, this person is seeing me, right? They see my whole body. And yet they seem not to understand like how fat works, like fat floats. And the idea that you would go into a body of water and that somehow like the water wouldn't go everywhere the way it's supposed to in a mikvah was completely um, not factual or connected with reality. But I think that fat people often have this experience of feeling both hyper visible and not understood or fully seen. Um, and that for me was such a um, powerful and troubling example of, you know, both being sort of on display and yet not really understood or seen. Yeah. Um, and seating in sanctuaries, absolutely, yes. Are there anything else that came up for you? And there's a couple of other pieces in the um, chat that I wanna get to. Thanks, okay, so, um, so Shmuley um, raised this concern about how um, family members, teachers, and other students will talk about the body with um, with your children and with their peers. And yes, absolutely. So we know from research that kids um, as young as four and five are already already have ideas about um, fatness and about fat being bad and thin being good. And we also have troubling studies about the age at which um, young kids and especially young girls um, are likely to start dieting um, or start restricting their eating in some way. Um, and I, um, I think this is another example of why for me this needs to be a communal conversation, because I think, um, you know, I can control the way that I talk about my body and other bodies to my children but I can't control the way that their peers talk to them or necessarily the way that their teachers um, or other or even other family members talk to them. Um, and um, and I, uh, I saw recently someone who posted in a parenting group um, that I'm on in Facebook um, about their daughter being, their six-year-old daughter being bullied at the park for uh, the, the kids called her fat. So this launched a whole conversation in the parenting group that included everything from um, people trying to assess whether this girl was actually fat, right, as if that was the relevant piece here, um, or doing what I often see, which is framing this as a problem of kids having bad manners. Right. Um, so whenever someone tells me that they, you know, they can't believe that someone was so rude to me, um, it's important for me to clarify that this isn't a question of rudeness or manners, right? That um, rudeness implies 
that it's perfectly okay to think these things about fat people, but you should absolutely not speak them, right? As if the problem is in whether people are making denigrating comments as opposed to the problem being anti-fat bias. And we'll, we'll talk more about speech though, because I think it's an important, um, an important piece of this. So we'll talk more about that in a little bit as well. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely why I feel like this needs to be um, a conversation. Okay, I'm going to um, move into a little bit of um, fat Torah prescriptions for what we should be doing about this, um, if you're all ready for that. So what's been uh, helpful to me in framing all of this is to think about different areas of impact and action. And some of these we've already covered. I'm going to share with you what each of these areas is, and then I'm going to focus on, um, on one of them in particular. So the areas that we talk about um, in our trainings and consultations and courses are sacred space that really has to do with the, the physical accessibility issues that we were talking about. Um, and the framing that we usually use for this is around Jewish values of welcoming. Um, and also, um, and also in, in connected with, with this idea of with the Jewish value of welcoming, thinking about um, what we want our sacred spaces to be. Um, so, and sort of how we want our sacred spaces, meaning our communal spaces, to be a reflection of who we want to belong and feel welcome in our, um, in our spaces. So that's sacred space. Um, sacred speech that I'll, uh, that's what I'm going to focus on more, um, I'll focus on in more in just a moment. Um, sacred time has to do with um, our calendar observances and has a lot to do also with um, the way that weight stigma can, as we said, can really impact our relationship with, um, with food and can, can really damage our relationship with with our tradition with the traditional foods of whatever your Jewish culture is. Um, so um, the best example I have of this is a story that was sort of part of what launched Fat Torah, which was that um, a year and a half ago, I was at my uh, young daughter's preschool Hanukkah party. And we were dancing around and enjoying ourselves. And I was feeling a little uncomfortable because I was nine months pregnant at the time and had this sort of internal dialogue going on of, oh, I hope everyone knows that it's because I'm pregnant that I'm not dancing around like I usually do, right? Which is sort of, which is really this internal internalized ableism, right? As if like, we're not just allowed to show up in whatever body we have and move however we feel like moving. Um, but, and then I was sort of trying to coach myself through it, right? I was like, oh, come on, you know, no one's judging you and you just need to be yourself and it'll be okay. Uh, and then we took a break to eat sufganiyot, right? One of one of the many traditional fried fried foods that we eat for Hanukkah. And then the young man who was leading the music um, said, uh, "All right, well, let's all get back to dancing, unless you've gotten too fat from those sufganiyot." He said to a room full of three to five year olds and their parents. And I was on the one hand shocked in that sense of like, "Dude, I'm standing right here." Um, and also, um, 
you know, all of that, all of those concerns that I had had about, you know, were people judging me was like, oh, right, people are constantly judging me and having denigrating thoughts about my body. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, I was also, you know, as we said before, you know, that this can be particularly impactful on young children. So I was horrified by that. And also thinking about, you know, what it means that he's taking something that's so lovely and central to the enjoyment of this holiday and making it something that's somehow um, dangerous to kids or um, or that they're bad for for eating it. So I had all of these concerns, but then I also suddenly had this sense of like, wait a second, doesn't this person understand that this is a holiday, that Hanukkah is a holiday where what we are there to do is to celebrate fat, right? That, that Hanukkah is a holiday of celebrating fat as a symbol of our people's endurance and survival. And so that sort of dual experience of realizing the harm that can come from weight stigma when it shows up in Jewish communal context, but also that sense that Jewish tradition can be deployed in ways that are liberatory was really um, a key moment in, um, in my own journey in this. So that's a little bit about um, what I call sacred time, right? thinking about how our holiday observances and particularly our food ways can be spaces of impact and action. And then the last is, is sacred text and how we can really approach our textual traditions as, as liberatory. So what I'd like to do in our remaining time is to talk a little bit more about sacred speech, because I think it is quite important. And then we're going to look at a little bit of text together. So sacred speech really comes from the sense in the Jewish tradition that our speech has the power to create or destroy worlds. So we have this image of God as creating the world through speech, right? The very opening lines of Torah are, are about God speaking the world into being. And then in our rabbinic tradition, we have a number of texts about the destructive power of speech and the way that speech is like, is like an arrow, that destructive speech is like an arrow that's shot from a bow. In, in other words, that it can you know, impact far away from where we, the speaker, are standing and also that once it's let loose, it's not really something that we can take back. Um, and so in our communal context, this, this is, um, you know, a way for me of framing um, a, a Jewish moral approach to speech around bodies. And I want to share with you one suggestion. Um, for how we can change our speech in Jewish communal contexts that I think is particularly powerful and particularly simple and not at all easy. And um, before I do that, before I share my one hint, um, I want to say that it's also important me to think important to me to think about speech, because, as we said before, you don't actually have to have a wonderful relationship with your own body in order to make change in this area and Part of that is that our tradition is not a mind control tradition, right? I, I think it's clear to me that our tradition recognizes that our emotions come and go and that we don't have a lot of control over them and that even our thoughts come and go and that we often have thoughts where we can't even tell where they're coming from or whether they belong to us. And that what we're not asking people to have to um, control their thoughts. 
but we do have this sense that the the gateway of the mouth is a place where we can actually do some work with controlling what we let loose into the world and whether the speech that we let loose is um, is liberatory or destructive. So my one um, piece of advice that is, as I said, very simple and also hard to implement is uh, is to stop complimenting weight loss. And um, this is something that I think comes as you know, sort of second nature to, to many of us that when we see someone who we haven't seen in some time and we notice that we've lost weight that they've lost weight that um, that we feel automatically that the right thing to do is to compliment them on that weight loss. And the reason that I advocate for not complimenting weight loss is that it signals to that person and also to everyone else who's hearing right so often also in our Jewish communal context we're speaking in these sort of semi public contexts where we're you know have at least when we when we actually gather in person right where, where I'm theoretically speaking to one individual but actually there are all these other people around who are hearing so what it signals both to the person you're speaking to what it signals to the person you're speaking to is that when you compliment their weight loss is that they're that, that you're judging their previous body the way their body was before um, and it also signals to everyone else around them that it's better across the board to be thin than it is to be fat right it's it's expressing a, a value judgment about body size other good reasons not to compliment weight loss are that you unless you have a very intimate connection with this person don't know what the cause of their weight loss is and you don't know whether in fact it might be because they are experiencing some kind of disease condition that is causing their weight loss including the fact that you don't know whether they're experiencing depression or some other kind of mental health challenge that's causing their weight loss or grief which can cause weight loss or an eating disorder and so it may be that what you're complimenting is in fact very disordered and an unhealthy behavior. And you, you don't know that unless you have a very close relationship with them. Um, and again, that also signals to everyone else around, you know, not only is it just sort of a general judgment about people's bodies, but it can also be quite harmful to anyone else in hearing range who is trying to recover from an eating disorder. Um, because it reinforces this cultural idea that actually it would be better if they were thinner. Um, very early on in the work of Fat Torah, I, um, I wasn't doing a lot of direct fundraising, but I had, you know, a little donate button that I would put in my blog posts and things like that. And very early on, I got this $180 donation from someone I'd never met before. Right? I was used to getting little donations from people who were friends and family members. Um, and suddenly I got this donation from someone I never met before. And I freaked me out a little bit. Um, and thankfully I turned to my um, mentors and peers in the new nonprofit fundraising community. And I was like, what do I do? And they said, you write to the person and you thank them and you ask them why they wanted to connect with you in this way. And so I did that. And this turned out to be someone who was not Jewish had sort of stumbled across this blog post that I had written and the reason that they were drawn to the work and wanted to support it is because they reported that for the last three years, they had not been able to connect with their spiritual community. In other words, they had not felt that they could go into the building and attend services in the ways that they had previously. 
because they were recovering from an eating disorder and the diet culture and just pervasive weight stigma that they encountered whenever they tried to connect with spiritual community was dangerous to their health. Um, so that's another thing I think about thinking about who weight stigma impacts is that absolutely it impacts the largest among us in systemic ways that are very different than the way that it impacts people who are wrestling with their own body dissatisfaction. But body dissatisfaction itself can lead to um, quite harmful behaviors. Um, and we can't tell by looking out um, at our beautiful communities who might be struggling um, with those issues and who might not be. Because um, disordered eating can happen for people in, in bodies of every size. So that's my, um, that's my pitch for this real shift in, in our sacred speech. of, And I, I think one of the reasons that it's particularly powerful for me is because it basically involves just not saying something that you might otherwise feel compelled to say. And so um, it's really that, um, that beautiful place of, um, you know, you're allowed to think it, you're allowed to have feelings about it. There's nothing in our tradition that says that you can control those thoughts or feelings but that we have this choice of just simply closing our mouths um, and not um, and not complimenting weight loss when we see it. Um, any questions about that before we move into our little tiny bit of text study together? Or about anything else that we've been talking about? Or anything that I didn't answer that you really still want me to address? And pouring myself a little bit of seltzer while I give you all a chance to drink. So we're going to move into this text study, and um, this really gets at, um, for me, this excuse me, this question that was in our title, right? What's Jewish about fat activism? Excuse me, sorry. Um, which is that we saw in that 1973 manifesto, and you heard when I was talking about health at every size, that there's been this approach to fat activism and fat liberation it's really been based on sort of the sense of if only people knew the facts about the inefficacy of weight loss, and if only people knew the facts about the discrimination that fat people face, that logic would simply lead them to agree that fat people should have equal treatment. Um, and it, what's clear to me is that that's not enough. And what's also clear to me is that our Jewish tradition and our Jewish communities are places where we actually have the option of finding our moral voices and using our, our moral voices to address these issues. And in particular, the issue that I want to address is the issue of human worth. And so we're going to take a look at um, some texts around human worth. And this is also to say that um, when I talk about fat Torah and people want to know what that means, I'm often asked, well, what are the texts that you use that particularly address issues of fatness? Um, and if you are curious about that, I'm actually, um, this fall, a little teaser, 
um, this fall, I'm going to be running an eight session um, Fat Torah Beit Midrash, where we're going to look at all kinds of topics through the lens of um, ancient and modern texts. Um, and um, we haven't publicly announced that yet, so um, definitely um, join the mailing list or find some other way to be in touch with me if you're interested in that. Um, but what's important to me to say, and what you'll see in these texts that we're going to look at together, is that what's more important to me than the specific text and what the text says about people's bodies is the lens that we bring to it and our own desire to deploy texts in ways that are liberatory. So the texts that we're looking at don't actually mention body size particularly at all. Let me share our source sheet with you. But do speak about human worth and um so that's what we're gonna look at and some of these texts again may be very very familiar to many of you um so um if we had more time we could also um break out and do um some uh learning in uh, in our breakout rooms about this but in the interest of time and um and given the size of our group we're gonna um we're gonna do this all together um so right so these questions of human worth really center around the idea the, the great big Jewish idea that all human beings are created in the divine image. And that begins right with uh, the very first chapter of Bereshit, the very first chapter of Genesis, when God says, let us make Adam in our image after our likeness. And then um, in the next verse, we read that in fact, that is exactly um, what God did, um, that um, that all, uh, all human beings, male and female, were um, were created in, in the divine image. So, and then later on, we also have this idea, um, uh, this reiteration that when God created Adam, um, God made Adam in the likeness of God. Um, so um, then um, we have this, uh, wait, I'm gonna skip, I'm gonna come back to the Vayikra Rabbah. No, well, let's look at it. So there's this lovely um, Midrash um, this lovely interpretive text um, in Vayikarabha that tells a story. Does anyone feel like reading this story where it starts the compassionate one that's good to one soul? Unmute yourself or, or raise a hand. Or I can read. Okay, okay. So it's this lovely story I'm gonna read and paraphrase as I go about Hillel the Elder. So when Hillel the Elder was leaving his students, his students would walk with him. And they would say to him, Rabbi, where are you walking to? And he said to them, to fulfill a commandment. And they asked him, what is this commandment? And he said, the commandment is to bathe in the bathhouse. So we have to give a little context here. This is a very shocking thing for a rabbi um, to say to his students, um, because the bathhouse, right, is this very, um, very Hellenistic, very Greek or Roman kind of place where there's concern often on the rabbinic side of things about sort of worship of the body and also worship of actual statues of bodies. Um, and so that's part of why this is so shocking to Hillel the elder students that, that he would say that bathing in the bathhouse is a, is a mitzvah, is a commandment. So they said to him, but is this really a commandment? And he said to them, yes, just like the statues of kings that are set up in theaters and circuses, 
um, just as with those statues, the one who's appointed over them bathes them and scrubs them, and they give him sustenance. And furthermore, he attains status with the leaders of the kingdom. I, whom created in the divine image and form, uh, as it is written, for in the image of God, God made Adam even more so. So, in other words, he's saying, look, if these Romans are, you know, scrubbing their statues of kings, and that, um, and the, and and if the per, the people who take care of those statues have this status, um, then shouldn't I, who has this bodily form that was actually created in the divine image, shouldn't I also do this work of um, bathing and um, and physically treating well this form that I've been given? Um, and what I love about this, right, is that it's not mentioning that he had a body that was a particular form or that was a particular shape. It's more the sense that because he was created um, in God's image, as we all are, that um, that he was commanded to um, to bathe it and, and be good for it in this way. Um, and the next text that we have um, is really um, the text that um, that I think really speaks to this question of human worth. Um, and it comes from, um, in a little while, uh, down farther in the text, we're going to get this midrash, this interpretive teaching, about God, comparing God to a king of flesh and blood, and saying that one of the amazing things about God and God's greatness is that when a king of flesh and blood wants to make coins in his image, in the king's image, he stamps out the coins and all the coins look exactly alike. But that when God creates humans in God's image, every single one of us looks different. Before we get to that text, I want to say that part of what's so powerful to me about this text is its context, which is actually in the context of how you instruct witnesses who are deciding whether someone who has committed murder should get the death penalty. And in other words, when they are talking about the value of every single human life, what they're talking about is people who, as witnesses in this case, have been given the power to take a person's life. And so the reason that, um, that this context feels so important to me, actually, is because they're not talking about human worth as being something that's only for good people, right? They're talking about someone who is a criminal and has engaged in very bad acts and is still someone whose worth is meant to be, as a human being, is meant to be taken with the utmost seriousness um, because that person is irreplaceable and of ultimate uh, and infinite value, that their life is um, of ultimate and infinite value. And it's in that context that we have um, this idea, first this one that I'm um, sharing here, that anyone who, um, anyone who sustains a single human being, it's as if he sustained an entire world, and that anyone who um, destroys a person, it's as if um, he destroys an entire world, right? So this idea of infinite value of every human life and then we and it's in that context that we get this lovely lovely um midrash about how 
um, when God, when the Blessed Holy One um, stamps all the people with the seal of Adam HaRishon, of the very first human, which is also meaning um, in God's image, that not one of them is similar to another. Um, and so what feels so important to me about this text as a text on body diversity um, is that in our tradition, we see the diversity of human of humans, including our bodies, as um, not only a valuable thing for communities, um, right? I think often when we talk about diversity and inclusion in communities, um, we talk about you know, what's valuable to the individual in being included. And we talk about diversity as potentially quite valuable to the community because of what it means to have a lot of different um, opinions and viewpoints. Um, but here there's the sense that that diversity is also and diversity of bodies is also a, a theological issue, because when if we want to um, fully express our sense of God's greatness that um, that the way to do that is to appreciate the diversity of um, of human beings, um, including our bodies. So I'm going to um, end with that.